They are imposing structures, and they are meant to be. You see, a tower indicates power. The idea is simple, really. A tower is a self-supporting structure that is taller than it is wide, often by a very significant factor. Now, while people may sometimes live in them, that is never their primary purpose. Rather, towers are built to serve other functions based solely upon their height. The height of a clock tower improves the visibility of the clock. The height of an observation tower enhances the visibility of the scenery. The height of a fortified tower increases the visibility of the surrounding territory for defensive purposes. Even today, towers are still used to strategically strengthen prisons and military installations and to exponentially extend the range of telecommunications transmitters. One of Canada's landmarks, the CN Tower in Toronto, is such a structure. Now, knowing the dismal history of humanity, it's not surprising at all that man would take the power of a tower and find ways to use it for their own evil ends. And sure enough, the very first time we see a tower in Scripture, or a migdal in Hebrew, men have figured out how to use the power of a tower against God himself. Genesis 11. And they said, go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven and let us make us a name lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. The tower that they built at Babel was known as a ziggurat. Archaeologists have excavated several of these very large structures over the years. They were built primarily for religious purposes. A ziggurat was like a pyramid except that the successive levels of the tower were recessed a little bit so that you could literally walk to the top on steps. At the top was a special shrine dedicated to a god or a goddess. So in building the structure, the people weren't literally trying to climb up to heaven. Even in ancient times, they knew they couldn't do that. Rather, what they hoped was that the god or goddess that they were worshiping would come down from heaven to the top of the tower to meet them. This structure and the city called Babel, it means gate of the gods and it was offensive to God Almighty. This project was an arrogant declaration of war against the Lord. The people were intentionally resisting God's command to populate the whole earth. They decided to build a city and a great tower and stay together rather than disperse. But even more, they wanted to make a name for themselves so that others would admire them and perhaps even join them. They were certainly unified, that's for sure. The only thing they lacked was the approval of God. And so God confused their language, which caused them to scatter as he originally intended. The word Babel is very similar to the Hebrew word Balal, which means confusion. So God's judgment here at this first tower in Scripture was that the gate of the gods would become the tower of confusion. 
But the point is this. Even the devil knows the tower, the power of a tower. Even the devil knows that. Despite this debacle at Babel, for the most part, the power of the tower was used positively throughout Scripture. Of course, towers were built at strategic points around city walls, and they were fortified with weapons that could be aimed at the enemy, and they were manned by watchmen whose responsibility it was to guard the city, especially at night, against attacks. Spiritually speaking, the prophets of old, they were the watchmen of the nation. They stood on the tower in the place of power with a word from the Lord. And we see it everywhere in the prophets. Habakkuk, I will stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower and will watch to see what he will say unto me and what I shall answer when I am reproved. Ezekiel. Son of man, I have made thee a watchman unto the house of Israel. Therefore hear the word at my mouth, God said, and give them warning from me. Isaiah, I have set watchmen upon thy walls, O Jerusalem, which shall never hold their peace day nor night. Ye that make mention of the Lord, keep not silence." Now, towers in the Bible were not only used to guard people and cities, they were also used to guard vineyards and cattle against thieves and predators. And because God himself was the protector of the nation of Israel, their songs often compared the Lord to a high tower or to a strong tower, and nobody, nobody could write those songs better than David. Psalm 18, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength, in whom will I trust, my buckler and the horn of my salvation and my high tower. Psalm 144, blessed be the Lord my strength which teaches my hands to war and my fingers to fight. He's my goodness and my fortress, my high tower and my deliverer, my shield and he in whom I trust who subdueth my people under me. 2 Samuel 22, and David he spoke to the Lord the words of this song in the day that the Lord had delivered him out of the hand of all his enemies and out of the hand of Saul. And here's what David wrote. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. The God of my rock, in him will I trust. He is my shield and the horn of my salvation, my high tower and my refuge, my Savior. Thou savest me from violence. Do you hear a little echo there? David sang about that a lot. David wrote about that a lot. It was the song of his life. It was the gratitude of his heart. God, you're my rock. God, you're my fortress. God, you're my shield. God, you're my deliverer. And God, you're my high tower. You're my strong tower. When I'm in trouble, I head straight for you. He wrote this when we used to sing this years ago in church. 
Hear my cry, O God, attend unto my prayer. From the end of the earth will I cry unto thee. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Let me pause to say at the end of this year, 2021, when the world is turned upside down and there's restrictions and there's division and there's confusion and there's all kinds of mess going on and some of you have suffered sickness and loss, pain and heartache, let me tell you, when your heart is overwhelmed, you know where to go. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. And here's what he wrote to the Lord. For thou hast been a shelter for me and a strong tower from the enemy. It's kind of like you can get in the middle of the name of the Lord and look out the window at the devil and say, what are you going to do about that? You tried to take me down, but I headed for the tower and I'm lifted up on high above my enemies. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Solomon grew up hearing his dad sing all those songs in every room of the palace. No wonder he later penned these words in his collection of Proverbs. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runneth into it and is safe. I know the world doesn't feel very safe, but I think some people of God in here this morning can say no matter what's going on, no matter what life has thrown at me, no matter what the devil's tried to do to me, I feel safe in the presence of God. I feel safe in the name of the Lord. I feel safe standing on the word of God. But most of those songs weren't written by King David when he lived in the palace and had everything going for him. No, most of those songs were written by Kid David when he was just a humble shepherd boy tending sheep out on the backside of Bethlehem, his boyhood home. It certainly wasn't a very glamorous place to grow up, just a small village in Judah. But for such a tiny little place, it sure had a lot going for it. When the patriarch Jacob, when his beloved wife Rachel died, bringing her son Benjamin into the world, he buried her in Bethlehem. The beautiful story of Ruth, a Moabite, a pagan, brought into the family of Israel through her marriage to Boaz, well, that story is set mostly in Bethlehem. And David knew that tale very well because Ruth was his great-grandmother. And so David, he would be born in Bethlehem and he would grow up in that little village to become Israel's beloved king. He knew its streets like the back of his hand. As a boy, he ran errands to the little market and he fetched water from the town well. And as he grew into a young man, he would tend his father's sheep in its fields. And he would write his majestic psalms by its mountains and its rivers and its valleys. He would be anointed by the prophet Samuel and he would be crowned king by the nation of Israel. And both of those powerful moments in David's life would happen in Bethlehem. 
For such a tiny little place, it sure had a lot going for it. Think about it. 3,000 years after David lived and died, we still talk and sing about that little town of Bethlehem every Christmas. Now, here's the deal. I love this. We sometimes think we have accurate information about the first Christmas just because we've heard others repeat commonly accepted information so often that it just feels right. It can be a bit disconcerting to find out that we actually don't have our facts straight at all. For example, we picture Jesus being born in a stable with animals present. But the Bible never says any of that. It only says that after his birth, he was laid in a manger. We picture shepherds and three wise men. But we're never told three wise men. And we picture them standing together at the manger. But the Bible tells us that by the time the wise men arrived, Jesus was two years old and he was living in a house. And we picture everybody following a star to the manger, but that just didn't happen at all. That came later. The shepherds from the fields near Bethlehem, they were the only ones who came to see Jesus on the night of his birth. And they didn't see a star. Rather, they followed some pretty strange instructions from an angel And those instructions seem pretty vague to us if you read them with an open mind. Luke 2. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. There's another one right there. We sing it every year. Hark the herald angels sing. The Bible doesn't say they sang. They sang at creation. They didn't sing at Bethlehem. They said. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Now, here it is. This is so strange and so weird and so vague. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Lying in a manger. What kind of sign is that? There are hundreds of mangers in the fields and valleys around Bethlehem. Thousands of mangers in Israel. That's like saying you'll find the baby laying in a crib in Fredericton. Good luck. Unless, like so many other things that we've overlooked... And so many details that we misunderstand or they're clouded by our own uh, traditions unless those instructions were not vague at all, but instead they were very, very specific. Remember, it was the prophet Micah who told us that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem Ephrata. We read it every year. That was another part of Bethlehem's claim to fame. The Messiah would be born there. 
But when we put all the pieces together, we find that Micah was actually even more specific than this verse that we read every Christmas. But thou, Bethlehem Ephrata, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. Micah just said a mouthful there. First of all, God's going to take this tiny, insignificant town and he's going to highlight it for his prophetic purpose, but also the baby that's going to be born there, the baby that's going to come out of that little town, he's not just going to be a ruler in Israel, but his goings forth have been from of old. That would mean he's an old man when he's born. That's kind of weird, but it's even better than that. His goings forth have been from everlasting. Micah just said a mouthful. It's going to be God who's born in that little town. It's going to be God who robes himself in flesh and comes out of that tiny, obscure little village. Now remember, we see Bethlehem Ephrata first more than a thousand years earlier when Rachel dies, bringing her son Benjamin into the world. Genesis 35, and Rachel died, and she was buried in the way to Ephrath, which is Bethlehem. And Jacob set a pillar upon her grave. That is the pillar of Rachel's grave unto this day. And Israel journeyed and spread his tent beyond the tower of Adar. In Hebrew, tower, Megdal, Adar. Megdal, Adar, literally the tower of the flock. The tower of the flock was a watchtower where shepherds could watch over their flocks, grazing in all the surrounding countryside. There would have been many such structures in ancient Israel, but this one in Bethlehem took on a very special meaning because of Rachel's tomb being nearby. David, being a shepherd himself in his boyhood years, he would no doubt have been familiar with this tower on the outskirts of the little town of Bethlehem. And as time went on, and as David made nearby Jerusalem his capital, and as his son Solomon later built the temple there, well, this one special tower, it became more and more and more significant. Because of the unclean nature of shepherding, at the time the Gospels were written, the only place anyone was allowed to shepherd a flock in Israel was way out in the wilderness, far away from where everyone else lived so everyone else would not become defiled by the unclean nature of shepherding. But there was one exception permitted under the law because hundreds of lambs were needed for temple sacrifices. And these flocks, they needed to be kept in very close proximity to Jerusalem. Thankfully, just five miles away was the little village of Bethlehem with its hills and its valleys and its pools and its streams just perfect for sheep to graze. And so Bethlehem became the one place in the entire nation of Israel where sacrificial lambs 
were raised. On the edge of the village of Bethlehem was Megdal Adar, the tower of the flock. And the Talmud states, all cattle as far as Megdal Adar were deemed to be holy and the sheep that were raised there, the animals that were cared for there could only be used for temple sacrifices. The tower, it was a two-floor structure when you talked about a shepherd's watchtower. And it was in that lower level of the tower of the flock where newborn lambs were brought. And these shepherds, they weren't ordinary shepherds. They worked in the temple system. They were highly trained. They were specifically trained. And when a newborn lamb was brought to the lower floor of that tower and it was laid to be inspected in a manger set up in the middle of the lower floor of that tower, these shepherds were fully duly qualified to examine that newborn lamb and deem it spotless or not. If it was not spotless, it could not be used in any temple rituals. And so it would be set back out into the pasture. And it would be shipped to a different sheepfold in a different part of the country. With a different watchtower looking over it. But if that little lamb, newborn, was spotless. If it had no blemish and no defect then those shepherds, these special shepherds, these highly trained temple shepherds that lived only in Bethlehem and tended sheep only in these fields and worked only in this tower, if that lamb was spotless, if it was without blemish or defect, they would wrap that lamb in long strips of cloth so that that little lamb would not kick about and hurt itself and become injured or damaged or blemished and thus unfit for sacrifice. The shepherds that tended these little lambs in this little village, they were not ordinary shepherds. They were skilled in discerning exactly what was a perfect lamb and what was an imperfect lamb. Again, they were not ordinary shepherds. They were an integral part of the temple system. Without these shepherds in this tiny town that worked in that tower, Israel had no sacrificial lambs available for the temple offerings. And brothers and sisters who have recently celebrated Christmas, these are the shepherds that the angel appeared to. When the angel said to this group of shepherds, and this shall be a sign unto you, you shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Those were not vague instructions. To these shepherds, and only to these shepherds, those instructions pointed to a very specific location. One manger in one tower where they worked every week of the year. It was called Megdal Adar, the tower of the flock. It was the only tower in Israel where sacrificial lambs were born and wrapped in swaddling bands and inspected by these very same shepherds. 
So on the night of Jesus' birth, these shepherds knew exactly where to go. I would suggest that they had trained all their lives for this very moment. You see, the prophet Micah, he wasn't vague. He gave another prophecy that was even more specific than his words that we read every year in Micah 5 and 2. Here's what he said just one chapter earlier. And thou, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, unto thee shall it come, even the first dominion. The kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. Now, why dost thou cry out aloud? Is there no king in thee? Is thy counselor perished? For pains have taken thee as a woman in travail. When Luke wrote his gospel account, his original audience would have immediately picked up on the significance of angels appearing to shepherds in Bethlehem. They knew that when you said Bethlehem, you were saying sacrificial lambs. And they certainly would have recognized the significance of Jesus being laid in a manger and wrapped in swaddling clothes just like a temple sacrificial lamb. No doubt many of those shepherds had studied and remembered Micah's prophecy that the Messiah, the first dominion, the kingdom would be revealed at Megdal Adar, the tower of the flock. And now in just a flash of divine insight and a proclamation from those angels, now it all made sense. How else would a woman in travail, crying aloud with the pains of labor, ever be associated with this tower where only temple shepherds worked? And yet, it wasn't in a stable. Read your Bible. That's not there. It was in that very tower that a virgin girl named Mary, when there was no other room for her and Joseph in any other building or structure in town, it was in that tower that that virgin girl brought forth the spotless lamb who would be wrapped in swaddling bands and would grow up to be sacrificed to take away the sin of the whole world. The Christmas story is far more amazing and miraculous and powerful and supernatural than what our traditions ever have dictated. Those shepherds knew exactly where to go on that first Christmas night. They weren't going from manger to manger and stable to stable trying to figure out where God had deposited the Messiah. They worked there every week. They made haste and they ran back to that one manger in that one tower where sacrificial lambs were birthed and wrapped in swaddling bands. And grew up to be sacrifices. It's amazing, folks. It's far more powerful than what your mind could ever conceive. The prophet Micah hadn't just specified the little town of Jesus' birth. He had identified the exact spot of Jesus' birth hundreds of years in advance. And Luke writes, they came with haste and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying 
in a manger. And when they had seen it, they made known. you got to remember who these shepherds were. They worked for the temple. They worked in the temple. They had examined thousands of spotless lambs and prepared them for sacrifice and prepared them to be protected by wrapping them in swaddling clothes. And when they got to that tower on that night and saw that infant wrapped in the same swaddling bands that they'd wrapped hundreds of sacrificial lambs in, all of a sudden, revelation burst in the minds of those temple shepherds and they understood when they had seen it they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child and all they that heard it they wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds if anybody in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago realized the significance of Jesus' unusual birth, it was these shepherds. And sure enough, he grew. And this happened. John the Baptist saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. And Peter, the Pentecost preacher, he would later write this, For as much as you know, church you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation it wasn't received by just a tradition from your fathers but you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ he was a lamb without blemish and without spot the Bethlehem baby grew up to become a Calvary savior and he lives today and he's in this church by the power of his spirit and He's coming back again to redeem us fully and totally and eternally unto himself. That's the miracle of Christmas. Oh, my. I wish you'd give a loud praise to the Lord. I wish you would thank him. It's so filled with a revelation, this Christmas story that we celebrate every year. It's powerful. It's supernatural. It's miraculous. It's eternal. It's got enough power to save you from your sin and to deliver you from your addiction and lift you up out of bondage and set your feet on a rock. Oh, my goodness. Ah. Oh, clap your hands, all ye people. You got a mask on, you're okay. And shout unto God with a voice of triumph. It may get a little muffled right there, but you can still worship God with your voice in this sanctuary. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I thank you, Jesus. Oh, Micah was far more specific than chapter 5 and verse 2. In chapter 4, the prophet, he wrote about that tower. Is there no king in thee, Bethlehem? Is thy counselor perished, tower of the flock? But brothers and sisters, ever since that miraculous night, we do have a king and we do have a counselor and he's even much more than that because that old prophet that we quoted on Christmas Eve, he said, for unto us a child is born and unto us a son is given. That's the Bethlehem part. That's the physical part. That's the earthly part. That's God robed in flesh. 
but it's more than just a baby in a manger. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful. There's your counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. Woo! You wonder why we like to worship on Christmas. You wonder why we put church in the middle of busy schedules around this time of the year. It's because we have just an inkling of who actually was born in the manger on Christmas Eve. And we know him through the power of his spirit. And the next time he comes, it's not going to be as a baby. He's going to be king of kings, lord of lords, the mighty God, the eternal one, and his name is Jesus and he has my full allegiance and all of my worship hallelujah oh my goodness yes 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 thank you Jesus thank you Jesus Thank you, Jesus. There's power that reverberates through the Christmas story. There's deliverance that just echoes around the edges of Bethlehem. There's a miracle that came out of that manger, and that miracle can change you. Oh, my. Oh, my. I, I know where I'm going. I can read it if I want, but I don't want to yet. I'd like a resounding praise to arise from every seat in this room, from every heart in this place, from every voice that can be lifted, from every hand that can be raised, because King Jesus is worthy of praise. Hallelujah. Oh, thank you, God. Oh, thank you, God. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Oh, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> the angel said to Joseph, and Matthew wrote it down for us, and she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. For he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled. Prophecy was converging on that manger. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child. Impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. With God nothing shall be impossible. A virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel. That ancient title that Jesus fulfilled. Which being interpreted is God with us. God with us still works on a Sunday morning at the end of the year 2021. He wasn't just God with us for a cute little quaint little Christmas tale 2,000 years ago. He's God with us today by the power of his spirit. Music, come on back. In fact, worship team, come on back. If God could orchestrate hundreds of of years of prophecies. If God could arrange all of human history 
to converge on one specific spot on the night of his birth, then you know he is able to find you wherever you are and help you no matter what you're going through and deliver you from whatever has hurt you and save you from your sin no matter where you are or no matter what life has done to you or how the enemy has tried to hurt you, if he could converge all of prophecy and history on one manger on the night of his birth, he can find you today wherever you are. And this great God, this great counselor, this great father, this great wonderful savior, he can pull you out and lift you up. A tower indicates power. Yes, Bethlehem had a strong tower, but we have a strong tower. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runneth into it and is safe. My tower is the name of Jesus. He's healed me when I've been sick. He's lifted me when I've been down. He's saved me from my own mistakes and foolishness. He has turned me around when I was getting far too close to something that would have hurt me or killed me. I'm so grateful for the name of the Lord, which is my strong tower. But you know what you need to do with this strong tower? You need to run for it. You need to go to it. You need to get in it. You need to stay there. And you need to let the name of Jesus lift you up high above all the enemies that are round about you. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. There was a tower in Bethlehem, but we've got a tower too. And I am so grateful on this last day of the year that you don't have to leave 2021 like you started 2021. You don't have to leave with a crippling addiction when Jesus paid the price to set you free. You don't have to leave this service with pain in your body because he took the stripes for your healing on his back. You don't have to walk out of here and feel like life isn't worth living and you're friendless and you're hopeless because Jesus thought you were so valuable. He bent human history and all of his prophets to say, on that spot, on that night, I'm going to intersect human history and I'm going to change everything. Bethlehem was actually the first day of our lives because God came to earth on that day and it changed every day since. I wish you'd lift up your hands one more time and I wish you would just let your voice ascend in this sanctuary. I worship you, God. Yes, 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 yes. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, you feel it. I can see it on your faces. I can see it in your eyes. I wish you'd stand and let your hands keep on going and let your voice ascend higher than everything else and just give Jesus praise. It's the last Sunday of the year. I'm leaving this year in victory. I'm leaving this year with a song in my heart. I'm leaving this year on the top and not on the bottom. I'm leaving this year with my hand in the hand of Jesus. I'm leaving this year 
here buried and ensconced in the tower which is the name of the Lord. I ran to it years ago and I'm still safe because he's still God. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Yes, 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 yes. Who walks on the water? Who speaks to the sea? Who stands?